Well, good morning. Happy Easter to you. The Lord is risen. Amen. Amen. It is a, uh, it's a privilege each and every Sunday to be able to gather for worship, but there is something really special and unique about gathering on Easter Sunday. Amen. 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 And besides, y'all are looking pretty good in your Easter outfits, I should say. And I broke out, you may have noticed, my pink tie this morning. I don't normally even wear a tie, but I busted out my pink tie. Someone told me between the services it's actually salmon-colored tie, but I'm still going to go with pink. But seriously, great to be gathered for worship this morning with you. Keep your Bible open, would you, to Matthew chapter 28, or if you don't have a Bible, grab it, open it to Matthew chapter 28, the wonderful passage that was just read for us. We've been making our way at Calvary through the Gospel of Matthew over these last number of weeks, and we will continue to after Easter in the next couple of months, as a matter of fact, finishing out the Gospel of Matthew. But this morning, we, of course, run ahead to the end of the Gospel of Matthew here to chapter 28 to this marvelous passage about the Easter, the first Easter morning in this resurrection story. And so keep your Bible open to Matthew chapter 28. Let me pause and let me invite us to pray together. Let's pray. Father, we began this service by blessing you as the one who's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we stand in the sunshine of the resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ this morning, blessing and praising you for the promise of new life, the reality of new life and new birth in our own lives. Now we pray and ask that you would strengthen our faith and our hope this morning through your word, by the power of the resurrection, and through your spirit that you would touch our lives, that not a single person this morning would go away unaffected, unchanged, and impacted by being here this morning, the gathering, reflecting on the reality of the resurrection. Would each and every one of us be touched in a unique way, leaving this place change, more like Christ, greater joy, greater faith, greater willingness to lay down our lives for the good of others and for your glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name, relying upon him and his power. Amen. Well, each of our four Gospels, the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell the Easter story in basically the same way. They vary, of course, in some of the details because they each are describing the Easter story that first Easter morning with their own perspective, their own theological perspective and emphasis. So there are some variances in some of the details, but in broad brush strokes, they tell the same story, the same basic set of events. It was early on the first morning after the Sabbath. The women were the first witnesses of the empty tomb. The stone was rolled away. Jesus' body was, of course, not there, and there was an angel. And the angel said these reassuring words, He is not here, He has risen. The basic outline of the Easter morning story, all four of the canonical Gospels tell it in basically the same way. But you'll notice that none of our Gospels, Matthew included, the passage just read for us, tries to, listen to this, explain the resurrection. We don't hear anything, for example, about Jesus' body being revivified or 
an angel coming into the tomb and tapping Jesus on the shoulder and causing him to, to come to life or a voice from heaven coming down to, to call Jesus back to life or Jesus' dead body somehow being roused by God's spirit and throwing off the grave clothes. We don't get any of that kind of description. In fact, it, it seems as though the gospel writers don't want to get into the messy mechanics of how Jesus' dead body was brought back to life. In fact, we don't really even hear anything, check it out, about the event of the resurrection. It's just assumed. What we get instead in all four of the Gospels, and certainly here in Matthew's Gospel, is this, the effect of the resurrection. That is to say, what impact did it have? On the tomb, the stones rolled away, the tomb is empty, of course, the grave clothes are lying there. More importantly, from Matthew's perspective, what impact did it have on those two first witnesses, those two women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary? How did it impact them? I think it's really interesting that Matthew, the gospel writer, he highlights for us not what happened to Jesus, but what happened to them. You might even say what happened in them. And then what happened from them and, and through them into the lives of others. It's as though in telling the Easter story, it's not so much about the resurrection of Jesus. Again, that's just a given and assumed, but rather about the response of these two women to the resurrection of Jesus. Which forces, I think, you and I to ask, how do we respond to the resurrection of Jesus? What impact ought it to have on our lives? How should our lives look different in light of the reality of the resurrection? Matthew tells us what happened to the, these two women, the impact in their lives. Did you see it there in verse 8? Take a look in your Bible. Verse 8, he captures their response to the resurrection with two primal, you might say, two great defining emotions. There in verse 8, fear and joy. Look there, we read in verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. These two defining primal emotions, with fear and with great joy. But why fear? Why fear? Well, you notice in the passage, the women aren't the only ones who experience fear. Look in verse 4, will you? Those that are to, to be keeping watch over Jesus' dead body, the guards, they experience fear as well. And Matthew here, I think, doing something kind of ironic with a twinkle in his eye as he tells the story. The guards are supposed to be keeping watch over Jesus' dead body, but when the angel shows up, they are like dead men themselves. Verse 4, a little bit of irony. Matthew's saying that they are experiencing fear, but the kind of fear that we know about, it's the kind of sheer terror or, or dread. But that's not the kind of fear the women are experiencing. Not terror or dread. That's not the kind of fear they're experiencing. The gospel writer Mark, when he tells a similar story at the end of his gospel, he, I think, helpfully describes what this fear is like using two words. Matthew captures it in one word, fear. 
Mark describes it with two Greek words that we translate into English this way. Here is what we find in Mark's gospel, which I think helpfully fills out what it means that they left the empty tomb with fear. Mark says they left with trembling and astonishment. Trembling and astonishment. Kind of fear. Not so much frightened, like someone just climbed in your basement window, but like freaking out in a good way. Not so much scared to death, but you might say like scared to life. Fear, not as terror like the guards experience, but fear as reverence, as awe, as astonishment. It's the kind of fear you experience when like something happens that blows all your categories, that disrupts all your expectations, that leaves you stunned speechless, you might even say even fear, trembling and astonished. There's a very popular show on Netflix called Stranger Things. Perhaps some of you have seen it, perhaps some of you have heard of it, perhaps some of you have been binging on it this weekend, I don't know. But on this first Easter morning, these women experienced a stranger thing, a stranger thing. Because even in the era before iPhones, dead people didn't just disappear from tombs. That's not an everyday experience in the ancient world, just like it's not in our world. These two women came to the tomb on that first Easter morning with no expectation it would be emptier. Jesus would spring back to life and be raised. They had no expectation of that. And so they go away from the empty tomb, overtaken with fear. That is, with a trembling and an astonishment. The British have a lovely word they use to describe this experience of astonishment and trembling, a kind of stunned into speechlessness sort of fear. The word is gobsmacked. Do you know this word, gobsmacked? Smacked. It's a great British word, and it even sounds better when you pronounce it with a thick English accent. I'm not going to try to do that this morning. A number of weeks ago, I used that word kind of just in passing in a sermon, gobsmacked, and I had one dear, lovely congregant write me a follow-up email and said, Pastor Todd, I love that new phrase you used this morning, God smacked. And you won't blame me. I, I didn't have the heart to correct the person, so I just went with it. And, and I kind of like the sound of it anyways, and I like the idea of it even better. God smack. Resurrection of Jesus is a kind of God smack, isn't it? Like when God raised Jesus, what did he do? God smacked death in the face. And when God raised Jesus, what did he do? God smacked the devil in the eye. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, what did he do? God smacked the curse of sin in the mouth. God smacked. Isn't that what Paul's getting after in that great celebration of the resurrection? 1 Corinthians 15. 
death is swallowed up in victory, Paul writes, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, the Apostle Paul says, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has been God-smacked through the resurrection. And you know what? It ought to leave us all gob-smacked. Astonished. Stunned in awe, speechless that God would intervene in human history in that way, gobsmacked, trembling, and astonished like these two Marys who leave the empty tomb with fear, with fear, trembling and astonished. You know, it's interesting that in Mark's gospel, he really emphasizes this idea of fear kind of highlights that in his telling of the Easter story in Mark's gospel. So Mark ends his gospel narrative, really, the final verse highlighting this, leaving the, the gospel story in a minor key, you might say, not a major key, a minor key. So the final verse of Mark's gospel goes like this, chapter 16, verse 8, and they, that is the two women, went out, fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Leaving his gospel story in the minor key. But notice, Matthew doesn't leave his story in the minor key, but makes his transition to the major key. He doesn't leave us with the women fearing, but he goes on to tell us that the women also experienced joy. Or to be more precise, as verse 8 puts it, great joy. Look there, verse 8. They left the tomb with fear and with great joy. Why great joy? Why great joy? Well, for the simple reason that the empty tomb can only mean one thing. That Jesus is alive. Which itself can only mean one thing. That Jesus is exactly who he says he is. Not liar or lunatic, but Lord. The long-awaited Messiah, the King of the Jews, Israel's Redeemer, the Deliverer of the nations, the Suffering Servant, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is exactly who he says he is, but not only that. The empty tomb for these women, no doubt, means that Jesus, check it out, is going to do all that he said he was going to do, all that he promised, all that God promises through Jesus will most certainly come to pass every last iota and every last dot. It's all going to come to pass. Whereas the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, for all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him through the resurrection. And these two Marys, you see, they understood this about the empty tomb. That what looked just a few days earlier like certain defeat as Jesus hung helplessly from the cross on that Good Friday has now given way to the glorious triumph of Easter morning. And so these two women go away with great, great joy in their hearts. You know the last time in Matthew's gospel where he uses the phrase, that exact phrase, great joy? You know where that shows up in Matthew's gospel? 
Back in chapter 2, when the Magi from the east come to see the Christ child who was born in Bethlehem. And so we read this in Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose and went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was, the Christ child. And when the Magi saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly, here's the phrase, with great joy. You see what Matthew's doing here? He's beautifully bookending the Christian story with Easter, with Christmas and Easter, with incarnation and with resurrection. He's comparing the great joy of Jesus' coming to earth from heaven with the great joy of Jesus coming to life from the dead. Both met with exceeding great joy. I like how one early church theologian puts this, how we ought to rejoice greatly at the reality of the empty tomb and the resurrection. Listen to the way he puts this, reflecting on the reality of the empty tomb in this first Easter morning. He says these profound, profound words. Listen to this. Quote, the order of things has been changed. The tomb devours death and not the dead. And the house of death now has become the mansion of life. Marvelous insight and observation, I think. Great joy these women experience because Jesus is alive. And because Jesus has defeated death through his resurrection. And so listen, if you're wondering this morning how you ought to feel leaving the worship service this morning, if you're wondering this morning what it would mean for your life, to be impacted by the reality of Christ's resurrection. If you're wondering this morning what it would look like for you to respond to the resurrection, then this is it. Fear and great joy. Reverence, awe, and elation. That's how we ought to respond to the reality of the resurrection. But let me hasten to add this. Let me say this as well. Fear and great joy aren't meant to be separate experiences, right? Like first the fear happens and then the joy happens. Like the one follows the other like green eggs and then the ham. You see, Matthew, in putting these two words together, fear and great joy, is envisioning these two emotions happening simultaneously. At the same time, as one single, complex, uniquely Christian experience of, you might say, fear dash and dash great dash joy, as one experience. But what is that experience? Like, what is this fear with great joy and this great joy mixed with fear? Don't fear and great joy tend to work at cross purposes in our experience and in our lives. How does that work? I came across, I thought, a charming story uh, this week about a seasoned Bible teacher who was lecturing his way through uh, the Gospel of Matthew at a pastor's conference, and he came to this passage, and then he came to verse 8, and then he made the observation in front of this group of pastors, this room full of pastors, about how interesting it is that Matthew puts fear and great joy right next to each other. And then he asked rhetorically this room full of pastors, don't these emotions cancel each other out, he's asking them? 
the back of the room, a hand shot up. It was a young pastor who shot his hand up in the air and stood to his feet with a ready answer. He said, sir, fear and joy definitely go together. I should know. I just got married. (laughs) I don't know exactly how old I was. I think I was maybe 12 or 13, maybe 14, but I remember it was a very memorable vacation. My parents took us as a family to the Abaco Islands down in the Bahamas. You may have heard of the Abaco Islands in the Bahamas for a week of beach combing and snorkeling and deep sea fishing. It was a marvelous, marvelous time. And and because we were going to go out on the ocean, do some deep sea fishing, we rented this little runabout boat. And one afternoon, I, I talked my dad into letting me take this thing out, this little boat out for a spin on the open ocean. And for some inexplicable reason, he agreed and, and let me do this. And off I went in this little runabout, having the time of my life buzzing around in the open ocean. And all was well until, put, 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 the engine gave out. And being the bright 12, 13, 14-year-old that I was, I knew exactly how to mechanically get this engine that had stalled out going again. You know what you do. You, like, hit the start button a dozen times and you flood the engine, right? Exactly what I did. And I don't know how long I was out there. It was maybe an hour, hour and a half, two hours. But midday was, like, shifting to mid-afternoon, even late afternoon. I got to confess, I was getting a little worried because I had no idea how I was getting back to the shore. And then I heard and saw off in the distance coming from the island a boat making its way like in a beeline towards me. And as this boat got closer, I could see my dad was at the helm of this boat racing toward me with lightning speed like I was somehow lost at sea, right? And I will never forget as he approached the look on my father's face, best described probably as fear and great joy. And I, of course, tried to play it pretty cool. You know, you're 12, you're 13, you're 14, you got the world by the tail, even in a stalled out boat in the open ocean. So it was no big deal. I was just kind of out there fiddling around and sunbathing and all the rest of it. And so I'm trying to downplay it with my dad like it's no big deal. And he was having none of it. And as he got real close to the boat, he just gazed at me. And I'll never forget what he said. Todd, next time the boat stalls, throw the anchor, otherwise you're going to end up in Africa. And all of a sudden it dawned on me. As I turned from facing the island where I came out into the open ocean into which I was drifting, that there was nothing but open ocean as far as the eye could see, no horizon, and I couldn't see Africa, but I knew now that was the last stop in my journey if I would ever get there. And then you know what happened from out of nowhere, the same complex of emotions came over me like I saw in my father's face. You know what it was? Fear with great joy. Fear with great joy. Trembling, astonishment, shuddering, silence, and elation all at the same time. All at the same time. Because I realized in that moment that I had been, I had been rescued. I had been delivered. I had been saved. And the only right response then was, was this, fear 
and great joy. Fear and great joy. You know, I think it's one of the delicious ironies of this calendar year that Easter happens to fall, did you notice this, on the first day of April, what is affectionately known in our culture as April Fool's Day. And, and I suspect there are many a preacher that are making all kinds of fun jokes and stuff about this little hiccup in the church calendar. You can just hear some of these jokes rolling out of pulpits this morning on this Easter morning that is also April Fool's Day. All I want to say this morning is this, that the empty tomb is no prank. It's deadly serious stuff. It's joyously serious stuff. That when the women left the empty tomb, they weren't duped by some kind of practical or sinister joke. No, their lives were transformed by the reality of the resurrection. And their lives were energized and animated by these two great emotions, fear and great joy, simultaneously. And so they departed quickly, Matthew says, from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell the disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Fear and great joy, you see. Fear and great joy. It formed their faith. Gave them rock-solid confidence in the person of Christ. Fear and great joy. It fueled their worship. They fall down at the feet of Jesus in humble adoration and praise. And fear and great joy. You know what else it did? It fired their witness. Because they couldn't keep the good news to themselves. It had to be shared. They had to tell others because of fear and great joy. Brothers and sisters and friends, may this reality of fear and great joy animate and energize our hearts this Easter morning, fear and great joy, and may it have the same impact in our lives as it did for these two women. Faith, worship, and witness. Because as the angel said, he is not here. He's risen. He's risen indeed. Amen? Father, in just a moment, we are going to celebrate the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection with these words, affirm these great truths that there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day up from the grave, he rose again, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Thank you, Father, that this confidence in the resurrection can be ours, that it is ours by faith this Easter morning. And thank you that we have a Savior who defeated death and who now stands in victory. May our hope be in him. May our hope be in Christ alone. Amen.